it alright if I drink while we're doing this, or? Yeah. You can tell us what the, uh... We need an intro or something. This is Diet Coke? Oh, we don't have <laughs> the drink of the day. <laughs> oh, well, now we know... Now we know he was up to no good sessions. Because uh, apparently he met with the Russian ambassador uh, in Cleveland. Ooh. Cleveland? We should call these the Jeff the Jefferson sessions. Home of the Browns. Or the Beauregard sessions. The Beauregard sessions. Mm-hmm. Beau- Jefferson Beauregard Beau- sessions. Beauregarding Jefferson. Fire. Oh, no. That's <laughs> the name of the episode. <laughs> okay, we got the name of the episode. Do we have the name of the podcast yet? Hmm. I like the precious snowflakes. But as, like you, snowflakes. as it was pointed out to me that special snowflakes is the phrase that is people it not mostly precious? use. Chris no, came up with precious snowflakes. snowflakes. Because like precious is like the children. Oh our precious snowflakes. That's how people think of their, their children as like helicopter parents. Oh precious. We're both precious snowflakes. Although I'm am I technically a millennial? I think you probably... Born in 1977. No. Because some people say Gen X goes up to 1980. Others say it goes to 75. I mean, I'm in the Carter administration, which is in this weird nether world. You're definitely... You're definitely in an in-between. Okay. Before we keep... Before we keep going... Okay, what do you want to be? Special snowflakes or precious snowflakes? I feel like special snowflakes is more recognizable because that's what people keep saying. But precious snowflakes is more unique. Yeah. We are. We are. I our, like the way we it are rolls your off precious the snowflake. Precious yeah, snowflake. Precious snowflake. Yeah. And precious, okay. it's kind of. It sounds, it sounds kind of cute, like we're trying to be cute, or that. You know what I mean? We are our parents' precious snowflakes. Okay. So let's. Okay. Let's. Whatever. We can. Uh, we can always edit it out. But let's <laughs> slate it. Okay. Um. I guess I should start. But huh? I know to, to, Tommy Lahren always just says the snowflakes, blah 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 blah. Hey, let's you let, know. Okay, let's actually start. Tommy Lahren. Let me the start the show. Let me start the show. Them yeah. Let me start the show. Okay, yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Precious Snowflakes podcast. Just Precious uh, Snowflakes. Okay, just Precious Snowflakes. Mm-hmm. Um, introduce yourselves, guys. I'm Lelius Rose. This is Ben Phelps. And I'm the producer, Chris Villarreal. Um, and we are Precious Snowflakes. And we are. We are. <laughs> okay, so you want to get right into it? What's on your mind, folks? So what is this podcast about? Are we it's, a, it's, generally about? Ta- it's generally politics, so no Politics, sports. culture of the day. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, no, no sports. And Sorry. why are we doing this podcast? Oh, and this is, um, yeah. Because <laughs> it was my crazy idea. My crazy idea was that you had a lot of you two had a lot of historical perspective that could keep us just, like, engaged for, like, I don't know how long. So I yeah. decided to capture lightning in a bottle, as it were. I see. I guess for a little a little background... Yeah, let's, let's, let's introduce you guys. Uh, well, I grew up in Seattle, was raised in a house of solid progressive Democrats, moved to upstate New York to go to college, where I... Evolved over time into a libertarian. Uh, I am currently, for the next mm, month, the regional director of the Libertarian Party for uh, King and Snohomish Counties. And I ran for state house this year in the 48th legislative district as a libertarian. So I'm a political activist, former lobbyist, uh, also (laughs) a former youth educator, uh... You say you're a lobbyist as if it's something to boast about. 
for nonprofits. I lobbied on behalf of transgender rights. I think okay. I'm in the clear on that. Not one. the coal industry or okay. no, no transgender rights and disability support and education. Those are my issues. Okay. What about our rights to mine coal? No, no. Mm. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> well, then we get into a whole discussion of property rights. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> well, my name is Lel. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, the center of the world, in a household that is actually split politically. My, uh, my father was born and raised, you know, a Democrat in the South during the Depression, became a Republican in the 1960s after uh, the last Democrat he voted for was JFK, whereas my mother grew up in a Republican household in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, sorry, my mic is off. Sorry. Okay. And uh, where was I? I lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> no, my, uh, I should start over again. The <laughs> no, just keep going. No, so uh, my mother grew up in a Republican household in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, didn't become really a liberal until after she graduated college. So she, uh, the last uh, Republican she voted for was Richard Nixon. In 1960. So my parents have never voted the same way in a presidential election. And yet, like uh, uh, Jim Carville and Mary Madeline, they've always managed to get along by just not really discussing politics a lot. <laughs> when they do, it doesn't go very well. But it, I think it's given me kind of a nuanced perspective. I mean, growing up in a very liberal, progressive you know, place, Hollywood, California, and yet having parents from different backgrounds and with different, you know perspectives both of them have you know both of them are not exactly dyed in the wool you know typical liberals or conservatives they've they've both you know crossed over so i think i've i've got a fairly balanced viewpoint i i've always been libertarian ish even though i haven't always used that term even though i've usually i've i've often considered myself more liberal than libertarian but i've recently kind of come into the world of a uh, libertarian with a big L politics thanks to Benjamin here. We'll, we'll get into that <laughs> um, in a okay, we'll, we'll get into that in the You can edit episode. some of this down, I, yes. I hope. I was going to say you uh you remind me of a of a rabbi I once knew. Or so I still know a rabbi I know. So there's a modern orthodox rabbi who was once asked, uh, where do you see yourself within the spectrum of orthodox rabbis? And his response was well, I, I think I'm right in the middle of where the Orthodox movement should be. <laughs> I feel like that's the description of yourself you just gave politically. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, I, like to, I like to think of myself as the most reasonable man in the world. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I... And on that note. Right on that note. And um, that, that's the legal fiction of the, the, the so-called reasonable man and every... Uh, Whenever you're in in the in legalese, whenever they're trying to establish the standard of, you know, what is considered negligent or reckless. What would the most it's reasonable always, man in the it's world? It's always do? what would the reason. So is your picture reasonable, under reasonable, negligent, or reckless? Well, I'm trying to explain. It's what would what would a reasonable person, you know, ex do or or expect someone to do? Not so, talk to a Russian base. Yeah. What would the reason? So, so basically, you're the one who knows porn when he sees it. Yes. Well, yeah. Or, or like obscenity. You know, you. I can't exactly describe it, but I know it when I see it. That's that's not really a definition. But. <laughs> okay. But yes, that's. Oh, uh, should I should I throw my hat in the ring now? You should care. You should care to. Okay. I'm the producer. I'm Chris Villarreal. I have another podcast called Still Awake with Chris Villarreal. It's on the uh, 
that's on the iTunes directory. I'm um I'm a director, writer, um, of films, and uh, I guess I'm getting into podcasting now. This is actually the second podcast I'm producing, and I thought these Yahoos would be like perfect to listen to for about an hour because I'm just fascinated by them, um, you know, just going on about the events of the day myself. So I figured I'd just record it for once. Am I a political activist? Should I be calling myself a political activist? <laughs> Requires activity. If you wanted to... I've been it... activated a little bit. You were my campaign manager? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Need slightly, I think we need slightly more I'm, I, I, uh, I managed your unsuccessful, yet, <laughs> yet, uh, yet historic uh, campaign for... Uh, 15,000 votes. That for, ain't nothing. Yeah, exactly. The 48th, not the, the 48th legislative district of Washington State. Yeah, yes. right? Washington, okay. The Washington State yeah. uh, House of Representatives. 48th district, position number two. So parts of Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland, plus the uh, the point cities, as they call them. So that's who we are. Yeah. yeah I, I hope we can pare this down a little bit and, and, and have a 10-minute introduction. We'll fix but, it in post. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, they, you do a lot of post in your <laughs> podcast, I don't know. right, I think Chris? I might just let this run. <laughs> oh, that, that would be really dull. Anyway, so... Mm -hmm. What well, are we going to talk about? What's really on our minds? Do, we, do you want it to be topical? Do you want to talk about... Well, you've got a serious right bee in your bonnet about Dr. Seuss. So oh, okay. let's, let's jump into that first. So there's a story um, I was reading on a, a blog. It, it's called um, the, the Angry Asian Man. But it's, a, it's, a, you know, I, it's one of these people that I've engaged with uh, in the past, you know, um, you know, on Twitter and whatnot. We have sort of a little friendly debates about things. Uh, what originally I, <laughs> I actually met this particular person, it came to my attention when we were having a kind of an uproar about Woody Allen uh, you know, oh. debuting at his film at Sith. Anyway, I digress. So it's basically, there was this story um, about uh, these, um, these, uh, these children who were, uh, it, it, well, I don't know, I don't want to get all School children. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're so, your so head here's, like, wow. <laughs> so here's the gist of this story. Uh, you know, most most people, I would say, in America and beyond, know Dr. Seuss for his wonderful children's books, which to this day continue to be bestsellers and delightful. Uh, less delightful the movie adaptations, but whatever. Um, one of the things that people know less about is the fact that during World War II he was paid by the U.S. government to do propaganda posters like anti-German and anti-Japanese World War II propaganda posters. That was his job as it was for many comic book artists uh, other children's illustrators who are still with us uh, and his were in his classic style but because of his sort of caricaturing style, uh, they've got a, a, a uniquely, specially racist vibe to them. So, at an elementary school uh, for National Read Across America Day, which coincides with Dr. Seuss's birthday, uh, an elementary school class was, was going to be reading and discussing Dr. Seuss. So these two, two students, according to this article, took it upon themselves... With a little bit of help from their parents. Right. I think we can fairly read in there that their parents <laughs> orchestrated this. Uh, to come to school with 
essentially flyers showing images of these racist cartoons that Dr. Seuss drew for the government during World War II with the caption that reads, Dr. Seuss was very racist. He insulted people of different color and, re and religion by drawing racist cartoons and so on and so forth. Uh, so they, these kids came with these flyers, they distributed it to their class and then the teacher had them collected and it's caused a whole kerfuffle. Um, so Lel, you came into this with a real, with this, with this really jammed in your craw. Well, the thing I guess is that, that sort of irked me was the way that people were basically praising it as such a wonderful thing that these kids were informing, like basically, you know, you know, you know, informing their classmates that, you know, you need to be aware of this. And it's really important to know that Dr. Seuss was racist and to talk about this and to turn the Dr. Seuss day into a discussion about racism. And it's not that I object to having discussions about racism, even in, you know, third or fourth grade or whatever. It says the children are 10 or 11, so I'm guessing yeah, 10 and 11. like third or fourth grade. It's like, why use poor Dr. Seuss? Who, yes, I mean, obviously the cartoons are racist. And Dr. Seuss, like many of his contemporaries, did some racist stuff and said some racist things. Stuff that he's probably ashamed of. But that was, that is not what Dr. Seuss is especially well known for. And it's, it just seems like it, it's, it's kind of needlessly smearing him for no particular good reason other than because you're looking for an opportunity to talk about racism and you're just wanting it, it's first of all it's using your children as shills to push an agenda basically you're inserting yourself essentially into the role of the teacher and and essentially and basically giving out a lesson to everyone else's kids based on what is essentially your own social justice agenda and i, I just think it's a really incredibly tacky thing to do and it's and it's and it to me it's just it's just case in point for how a lot of liberals just don't get what pisses people off about the way they, 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 they push their ideas and their agenda. It's not that they're wrong. It's, it's the way they go about it in a really just insensitive and just needlessly, I mean, what's Incendiary. It? Yeah. It's, and, and using somebody who's as beloved. I mean, what I was thinking to myself is, is nothing sacred? Can we not? I mean, Dr. Seuss, when people talk about Dr. Seuss, no one even knows what Dr. Well, Seuss looks like. Dr. Seuss is not even like a person. Dr. Seuss is an idea. Dr. Seuss is a brand. Why are we going out of our way to find something wrong with Dr. Seuss? It's not as if there's like latent racism in the literature itself. So my perspective on this is I would say actually mostly like divorced from my sort of political perspectives mm -hmm. because I've spent most of the last 10 years uh, as, a, as a youth educator. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a youth group, uh, been a youth group advisor, youth director, you know, religious school teacher for a very long time. And I've actually done a lot of like pedagogy and like I've taught other people how to be religious school teachers. So for me, what this really jumps out as, what really jumps out about this to me is that it, it's almost just a wasted opportunity. Because uh, when you say 
you know, is nothing sacred? You know, why besmirch Dr. Seuss? My actual gut response to that is, well, no, that's exactly why you bring up Dr. Seuss, but this was not the right way to do it. Right. This was a, this was bad execution because what you end up here, uh, what you end up with here is just a totally one-sided, he was racist, instead of, I don't know, devoting, an, a, devoting a lesson well, to a lot of people at the time, a lot of people who worked in this industry of, of illustrators, did these propaganda cartoons during World War II, it was a weird, dark moment for well, us from an artistic perspective. Well, sure. So that's not the part that really got to me. The part that got to me was these parents was the, and their, their ham-handed effort to essentially teach a lesson to other people's children. Well, right. The <laughs> and kids. Using, some, using you know, something as an excuse to say, all right, here's, here's what I want to say and here's what I want the rest of... Basically, these, the, the, this one, you know, these two parents saying, this is what the class ought to be talking about. It's like you're so wrapped up in your whole social justice, you know, everything is about racism mentality yeah. that you're pushing it onto a third grade class. I don't think that, it's, On a topic that has nothing to do with racism. I don't think it's ever appropriate for kids or their parents to bring their own materials and effectively hijack a class. Mm -hmm. Like if I were the teacher in the room, I would have immediately been like, what are you doing? Give those to me. Because when you're the teacher in the room, you have a lesson prepared. Right. You have your goals, you have your agenda, you have your activities and your timeline that you're going to meet. And this is a hijacking. Mm -hmm. It's not fair to the teacher. And here's the, a, from a parental perspective, if, if I were the teacher in this classroom, what I would say to the kids was, I really appreciate the work that you put into this. Mm -hmm. This isn't the right time for this. I'd really like for you to talk with me about this later and maybe bring in your parents so that we can figure out something together well, and not to blind, teach the class not about not blindside it. the teacher by having all of a sudden their flyers flying around and little kids are like, why is Dr. Seuss, you know, hate the Japanese and whatever. But, and the, the, but to me, it's the broader point it's, of the whole, because I mean, I see a lot of stuff, especially in libertarian circles, people going on about so-called, and I put this in quotes, social justice warriors. And, and these, and typically these people that are often referred to as social justice warriors, usually in a, in a, as, as, well, and it's, usually, it's you, a pejorative. Yes. As a pejorative, I for, mostly support what they're, what they're trying to do, you know, as far as, you know, you know, trying to make people more aware of racism and its effects and white privilege, yada, 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 all that. But part of the problem is when you when you make yourself essentially a warrior, everyone is the enemy. The enemy, yeah. <laughs> and you're basically coming at people from a from a position of okay, you're doing something racist. You're you're if there's a there's a way to do it that'll get people, you know, actually thinking and 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 considering your point. And then there's a way that just makes people feel attacked and resentful. And I think like attacking, using children to attack Dr. Seuss to me is just case in point of why, you know, a lot of people on the right are just are fed up with political correctness because everything is like an excuse to, to say, you know, it's like we've heard it before, you know, people, you know, don't really consider themselves racist, don't want to be thought of as racist or because for whatever reason. And yet, 
That that's how they well, feel they're being painted. This is a lot of the people who voted for Trump, and I just can't help but just shake my head when I see all these, all these, all these, you know, liberal white people in on the on the on the coasts shooting themselves in the foot trying to send their message. One of the I mean, you have a good message, but you just make it so unpal- unpalatable. With, the, with, with your delivery, and here I and of course a lot of people would probably be listening to me right now and saying, "Oh, you're tone policing," <laughs> or something like that. But I'd say one of the things that I learned when I did nonprofit lobbying in D.C. is that in in D.C. everyone works together mm-hmm. where they can. You know, left wing lobbyists, right wing lobbyists, uh, legislators, aides. They all go to the same bars, they go to the same restaurants, they hang out together. And it's not always as nefarious as one might expect. A lot of it really is people getting into a room together and saying, what do we have in common? Let's work on that. Mm -hmm. And that was actually very encouraging. Like being in D.C., working on behalf of uh, transgender rights and disability support, you know, I found that there were a lot of people, like mostly the attitude there was, if I disagree with you, I'll ignore you. If I agree with you, I'll work with you. And everything was taken issue by issue. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone works together on something. Right. Um, and I do see that once you leave, it's maybe one of the only things about the DC bubble that translates as being <laughs> a positive. You know, we're like, oh, that's something that, that we could all learn from Washington, right. DC, is the way in which they work together. Which I think a lot of... I mean, also, things could have changed. That was, you know, eight years ago. But there is something to be said for always always forcing yourself to work with people on the areas where you agree. You know, I always try to do that. At, at camp, they always say, assume goodwill. You know, you should always assume goodwill about your coworkers because no one has enough time or energy in the day to go out of their way and screw you. Mm-hmm. you know, and obviously in other contexts, people really do. But if you try to always assume goodwill, you end up getting more done. Uh, so I completely agree that a lot of the... You know, we're, we're living in an, in an age of very black and white where people on the left and people on the right are both largely sort of shrieking at each other at their loudest volumes. And a lot of libertarians do that too. Uh, you know, people in every corner are are trying to are trying to scream over each other, and the louder someone is, the more successful other people tell them they are, even if no actual change gets heard, or no other no other change gets made. Um, which is actually sort of an interesting segue into sessions, because um, I was talking about this earlier. Uh, you know, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, the Attorney General of the United States, is now uh, under all sorts of suspicion <laughs> for having met with the Russian ambassador to the United States at least twice in recent days, at least one of those times, while he was an active advisor to the Trump campaign. Uh, he said under oath that he did not meet with any with any representatives of Russia to discuss the campaign. Given that there was, as far as we know, no recordings made of the conversations between him and the Russian ambassador, Mm -hmm. we'll never know. Uh, 
My problem with the large response, I see a lot of people on the left just uniformly saying he should resign, he should resign, he should resign. Right. And sort of moderate or anti-Trump Republicans saying, well, at least he should recuse himself from the investigations. And the pro-Trump Republicans saying, no, you say this about all of our people. And there's truth to that. I well, feel sure. like... It, it comes down to, you know, is it really that you're that outraged or is it just an opportunity to score right. a and blow against Trump? Right. Not, that I'm, not that I'm in any way in favor of Trump or his agenda, but if you're going to go after someone, there needs to be a point to it. There needs to be an end game. And you need to, and, and if you want to have a political win that the country is going to side with you, as opposed to just thinking you're, you're going after him just to go after him. Right. There has to be some real legitimate reason. Now, nobody really knows how deep this whole Russian thing goes. I have a feeling it goes a lot deeper than, than anyone possibly imagined. But that's just speculation on my part. There needs to be a real investigation. And that's why Sessions needs to be recused. Does it mean he's not qualified to be Attorney General? Well, say what you will about him. I, I don't think you quite have enough on him to demand that he resigned right. at this point. He has, to say the least, a patchy <laughs> history. Well, the uh, fact that he can't remember exactly what he what he discussed with this ambassador, who is is, is, is the kind of guy, yeah, what's his name, Kislyak? Is, is, he's not the kind of guy who, um, who, who does not make an impression on you. He's a big, imposing guy with a thick accent. and He's not the kind of guy you would forget if you had a conversation with him. You don't small him. talk with that guy. <laughs> you certainly don't fly to Cleveland to small mm -hmm. talk with him. There was at one point today where... <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, there. You know, uh, Nicholas Sarwark, the uh, the chairman of the Libertarian Party. I thought the had an interesting chairman. Yeah, the national the chairman had a an interesting tweet today where he said Jeff Sessions should resign as Attorney General, not because of his perjury, but but because of his clear incompetence as an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the so the funny point about that is that. Um, is that Al Franken, Senator Al Franken, mm -hmm. I should say, didn't actually ask him if he had had conversations with Russian officials he, he about the He answered a question he wasn't asked. Yeah, he answered a question he had asked. Something any lawyer should do. Which is something a lawyer should know absolutely not to do. <laughs> um, so whether, whether or not he has now perjured himself, it's entirely his fault. And then there was Chuck Schumer, when asked, you know, for his opinion, started the sentence with, well, I'm not a lawyer. And then remembered, of course, that he actually is a he lawyer. He is a lawyer, yeah. And changed it to legal expert mid-sentence. <laughs> I think it's been it's so like, long okay, so since he's actually had to be so a lawyer. So you're a lawyer who's not a legal expert. Okay. <laughs> I think that says a lot about people who go directly from uh, law school to government right there. Well, I mean, and what? who other than a lawyer would go to that much trouble to parse their language? But the fact that Sessions didn't do that and that he and that he offer that he's been offering up these details that he wasn't asked that's a very like unlawyerly thing to do right. well the so here right and here we come back to like i i am no fan of president trump uh to <laughs> say the least i i in my effort to make sure he didn't get elected i actually like donated to basically Almost every other candidate mm -hmm. at some point or another, sure. whoever had the highest possibility of beating him at some, at every sort of stage of the election. And 
So he was basically the only major presidential candidate I didn't donate money to or devote time and volunteering effort to. And now he's the president. But having said that, and like, it, if he had to, if something happened that caused him to not be our president anymore, uh, and something, I mean, something like legal, like something was discovered about him. Right, right. He, either he was impeached or had to resign. Right, if he was either impeached or had to resign, I'd be thrilled. Mm-hmm. But it has to be real. Well, and, and it feels to me like the Democrats are just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Well, and people course. are already tired of and it. And who can blame them for, you know, not for, I mean, after what they went through, after, I mean, with, well, yeah. with, with Bill Clinton and with Barack, I mean, Barack Obama, they didn't try to impeach him. But, I mean, they, they, they went after him nonstop. They, you know, everything that he tried to do, they opposed kicking and screaming. And now, and that's the thing, if, you're, if, if Trump were to get into big trouble, he is going to go kicking and screaming. He's not going to resign unless... I right. mean, they would literally have to well, drag I, him out. And the, the thing I, I... The sense I get from a lot of people on the left who are, you know, just itching to say impeach him and to protest everything, single thing he does, regardless of what it is, you know, without really picking an issue, is I think they can't wrap their minds... They, they can't put themselves into the mind... Of, of, of the who people who him. voted for him and the people who like him and and just who don't understand just how loyal these people are. I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of people who voted for Obama who wanted to give Obama a chance who now just feel completely, you and know, screwed over by the Democratic Party and and are thinking to themselves, "I am never going back to the Democrats. I will never trust them again." And Trump, for all his bullshit and lies. They they see him as somebody who actually keeps his word as as far as the way they they see it. Now I personally don't think he's doing most of these you know working class folks any big favors, and a lot of these executive orders he's signing it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. It is. But the really the thing I think Democrats and libertarians that. and anyone who opposes Trump needs to be asking themselves is what are the people who voted for Trump who still are, are very solidly in his corner, what's going to really matter to them? What's going to make them pay attention? Because arguing with ourselves and, and yelling, not my president, you know, impeach him, you know, that's, that's really, that's not going to get it done. <laughs> the, the thing that sort of blew my mind about election night was that for the past uh, 12 years, really, uh, Republicans have talked about Pennsylvania like it was the holy grail. Mm-hmm. Like if they could just grab Pennsylvania, oh sure, they they would be in forever. And you know, from uh, from McCain to Romney to the you know thirty eight thousand candidates in the primaries in this past cycle, everyone, you know. They all, they all had a theory, they all had a plan, something laid out mm-hmm. for how they were going to get Rust Belt voters in Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Indiana, how they're going to keep the ones they already have and expand deep into the union workers, into the white working class. And the goal was always Pennsylvania. Right. And when Trump won Pennsylvania... That to me was a clear sign that like, say what you will, say what you will about the popular vote, but 
for years now, the Republicans have been saying, if we can get Pennsylvania, you know, that's, that's the key because Pennsylvania is filled with well-educated uh, liberals of all stripes. It's got sure. huge urban populations and also a really big rural and suburban yeah, it's a, it's working, a, like white working class population. It, it's a great bellwether state because it, right. it does have a little bit of everything. And you know what? And it and it and it, can, and it depends on who. I mean, this these are. I mean, look at look at the, some of the politicians that we've that we've gotten from this state. We've got Arlen Specter. I mean, there's a guy who can appeal to both sides, right? It's yeah. also the same state that's given us Rick Santorum. Right, and Pat Toomey. <laughs> and Ed Rendell, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you've got people, you've got people on, on the right and people on the left mm-hmm. all over the place in Pennsylvania. And I, I do really, yeah, there is, this, there is this sense of like, of sort of Democrats who live in a bubble saying, if you don't support everything I support, then you must be X many ist things. Right. Uh, that's just never, that's never a good way to persuade anyone. You know, I, I found myself migrating sort of from the left into sort of the center and then into a libertarian space, Mm -hmm. not because someone was shouting at me that I was wrong, but because people would present arguments and counter arguments. And I read a lot and reading a lot brought me to where I was. And for me, when I've gotten people to agree with me on things, you know, whether it's been in uh, youth group stuff, curriculum planning, or election stuff, it's always been by appealing to what we have in common. Well, sure. And that's something that's just not, well, it's not happening right now. And as somebody who's considered myself a liberal for most of my life, I just, the thing that, that bothers me listening to liberals now is they're the ones who sound like the thought police. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, I mean the, the, the people on the right actually seem more open-minded to more like far out there, you know, even if some of it is pretty wacky, they're not as dismissive of, you know, things that are, that are, uh, that are. <laughs> so this is, to put myself in an interesting. Is that a good thing? <laughs> well, being open-minded, I think, is always a good thing. I mean, we can actually have the conversation, whereas in a lot of liberal circles, there's cert- they're just conversations we're not allowed to have because it's it's not a it's off topic. Yeah, that's not great. I mean, that's just like <laughs> that's just that's that's off one deep end, and then you know when the you know believing in fake news is like, like off the other deep end, like Milo fake news, like Milo Yiannopoulos, everything is fake news. Like Milo Yiannopoulos is a great example of someone. A lot of most of his ideas are totally abhorrent, but the idea that the way we deal with him is by not allowing him to speak, or, or criminalizing his speech. I've heard people suggest that what he's that that the things that he says should be considered criminal. Yeah, I don't believe <laughs> that at all. That, yeah. it, that 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 there should be like. That you know, quote unquote, hate speech, and while I do believe that there is such a thing as hate speech, I think a lot of people stretch the definition to the point of you know somebody. I mean, it's not a crime to be racist well, or to, th- to think racist well, thoughts you know, and express well, them. It, it, it is, it, but it, it is a crime to publish somebody's home address and. Well, sure, and so, we and some people do take it. Like when it when it when it when it when it, t- when it comes to harassment and threats, yeah, I'm sure you heard about the the people who were just sentenced to lengthy prison sentences 
uh, I forget which state was it in Georgia or somewhere in Sounds the south. Like Basically, for uh, the the racist, they did like a Confederate flag drive by on a on a child's birthday party, <laughs> screaming so, racist, well, you know, screeds, and but and they got a fifteen year prison sentence for it. The the example that is always brought up, and of course, you know, it's a little close to my heart, is the example of neo Nazis doing a parade through a mostly Jewish suburb. Mm -hmm. Is that appropriate? Under what circumstances is it appropriate? And what I was always taught as, you know, a young Jewish kid learning about these things was, that's okay, you just have to accept that there are gonna be people who hate you and disagree with you, sure. and you don't, you don't change their mind by trying to, uh, by trying to criminalize what they're doing, uh, you you change their mind by living next door to them right, you... and being a normal person. And uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said that you know your your right to swing your fist ends when it makes contact with my face. Exactly. And that to me is really the line when it comes to those sorts of things. And of course, right now we've got a lot of. Got a lot of uh, fists contacting with faces or with tombstones, at least. Well, and, and I am very aware of the fact that as a cisgender, white male, Anglo-Saxon, you know, I'm, I'm not religious, but I guess I, I come from the, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant background, that I'm not really, I've never felt or been a target of, of racism or discrimination based on my race, gender, you know, sexuality, whatever. So I don't actually know firsthand what it feels like to be targeted. I mean, you, you as a, as a person of the Jewish persuasion, definitely yeah. have a have had a few tastes of anti-Semitism. Well, and I and I certainly why I know people who have experienced these things. I I don't know firsthand, so I I do understand that white privilege is a thing, and that I and I benefit from it. But at the same time. You know, as, as somebody who hasn't experienced that kind of victimization, I there's also a certain, I don't know, almost neutral perspective that I get from not having been. I mean, there's a reason why on juries that they don't usually have crime victims on, <laughs> or people who have had bad experiences with the police. I'm not saying that I'm impartial, but at the same time, I think being a victim of, of racism or anti-Semitism or all that, it can, it does kind of affect your perspective. Well, I mean, this is sort of the... And that you see it in places even where, there, where it's not even, you know, intended or even... Well, this is the funny, funny, if any of this is funny, the funny thing for <laughs> me uh, about all the things being stirred up right now, uh, as the election neared its close and as you know Trump won I started to see a lot of uh, sort of Jewish kids younger than me writing about how like oh this is the first time I have <laughs> seen witnessed or experienced anti-semitism yeah. and my response to them was <laughs> yeah, where are looking, you from? I've been looking very hard <laughs> maybe yeah. people haven't been in your face about it well, I mean anti-semitism is one of those things that kind of you know, hovers sort of below the surface. You know, it's like well, but it right. It's, and it's like it's 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 there. You can kind of feel the vibrations of it, but it isn't always 
jumping out at you like like well, my, it isn't always desecrating a cemetery or so my my family went through a sort of an interesting experience with that because we we were a family from New York. We were a family of New York Jews. Mm-hmm. And we moved to Bellevue when I was going into first grade. So we had come from a place that was where, where being Jewish was more normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming into a place like Bellevue where <laughs> it's a much smaller proportion of the population. And like we, it, there, there is something about that experience, about about growing up to a degree in sort of a more isolated yeah. uh, situation and then being presented with that. That, is I, like, that, like that if, must be really weird. I mean, I, I went to a very diverse high school where being Jewish was and white was more normal than being Christian than white. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> That's I, a weird I, went to, I went to a very diverse high school, <laughs> but it was diverse in every respect except... Uh-huh. Except that one, right, right? Like we had people of all of all faiths, all stripes, all colors, but like not a lot of Jews. Um, so like, if I had actually grown up in Long Island, maybe I would never have been asked why I personally killed Jesus Christ in a math <laughs> class in ninth grade. Like well, things a- like that just happen. Yeah. Well, uh, and you know, I, you know, when we're talking about teenagers and kids, I mean. Kids say some ignorant shit. I mean, yeah, well, <laughs> you, you have to sort of discount certain things. I mean, kids. My, my will... favorite one was the when the other Asian kids told for me that I was in fact not Asian. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, Chris. Uh, <laughs> yes, as the as, as the as the real like uh, person of color in the room, <laughs> and, and and yet you have kind of an interesting you know perspective on 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 race and that you've always sort of fit in with white people well it's just we're sort of just in the background i mean you can sort of safely ignore me people don't have strong enough like opinions about filipinos to really hate them right i mean oh well (laughs) you can you can can definitely turn up the heat as much as you like sure but I mean, so, I mean, racists, you know, in like Podunk, wherever, you know, in, in whatever flyover state, they don't, you know, go, oh, the Filipinos, they're such a big problem. I mean, people don't, I mean, I guess the Philippines has maybe a higher, uh, you know, profile now with Duterte Harry, you know, and all his reign of terror. No. But, <laughs> sort of, but, oh, but he, sort of like, he was sort of like our canary in the coal mine. Just, but I mean, people, for such good this was a warning. I mean, it was a warning. It was just yeah. like, see what can see what can happen here. I mean, I guess people well, think Philip- it's going to be a Marine Le Pen. I mean, if you ask somebody to think, okay, think of Filipinos. They think of like you know nurses in the hospital or like, I mean, what what is is there a stereotype of Filipinos? Yeah, the nurse. Okay, but are there <laughs> negative stereotypes of Filipinos? Well, um, people have like a specific problem with Filipinos that they always point to. Well, the United no, the United States occupied the Philippines for a yeah. hundred years, so the the relationship between white Americans and people from the Philippines is different than the relationship between white Americans and people from not America. And the Philippines is a really interesting example of a melting pot of cultures. I mean, it's it's homogeneous in that. Everyone in the Philippines is mostly Filipino. 
I mean, you do have Catholics and Muslims, but it, I mean, you really do have a literal, like, melt, almost literal melting pot of, of cultures. And that food. There's the indigenous Filipino culture, there's the Spanish, there's the American. I mean, you guys are kind of all over the place in terms of the, mm. your cultural influences. Oh, God, I gotta put that track on where, that, that, <laughs> that track for La La Land where Ryan Gosling whites playing with the jazz to. Yeah, so here I am white explaining your culture to you. Well, as someone who grew up in East LA. Yeah. <laughs> but it was not exposed Around to Around really, Latinas. Was not exposed to the good food. I missed out until like <laughs> I started exploring the place for myself. And um mm -hmm. it just like it was it didn't happen until I was sixteen. I was just like, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was not taking advantage of my surroundings. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, yeah, there's, it's interesting, the various, uh, different kinds of discrimination are definitely, definitely uh, come up in different ways with, uh, with sort of pure naked racism mm -hmm. against people of other colors. It typically comes from a sense of uh, superiority from the person who feels that oh, sure. the racist thought. Whereas what I've experienced as a Jew is generally like the sort of conspiracy thing, the like <laughs> the do you secretly rule the world stuff. Yeah, uh, and that, that to me is hysterical that people really believe. Well, but there's always stuff, but the but, but the thing that is bubbling right under that all. is always <laughs> like, oh, you people secretly run the world, which is why as soon as everyone has realized that we're going to rise up against you, <laughs> and it's like what. I would prefer that we rule the world first, because we don't actually right now. Please. At least you get to be the Bond villains of of of, 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 of discrimination. Yes. You get to be the Bond villains of <laughs> yes, discrimination. Yes, we do. We're just we 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 really just all in our caves with the cats. We really are. The Filipinos really are your your um your your help. No. <laughs> We, we're just sort of like, you know, just sort of like swept under the rug there. You know, I imagine as our, our listeners or our listener or anyone listening to us or listening to me talk, sort, of, uh, sort of awkwardly talk about, you know, my perspectives on racism and whether or not I'm racist or if what I think of racism because I'm Please, you know, white and have comments really about whether or not we are racist. The thing is, the thing, yeah, that, um, the thing that occurs to me is oh. one of the things I've always found really beneficial about having friends and knowing people of other you know races and cultures is that i can have awkward conversations about race and culture with people without it without in a in dare i say a safe space where i'm not gonna be called racist or told that i'm you know <laughs> that i'm that i'm terrible or whatever i mean i we oh i mean we can have awkward conversations about that and it's okay and we learn something about each other. And I think it's kind of sad that there's a lot of places, especially in education and universities or just or just anywhere in the public sphere that we can't really just have good-natured, awkward conversations. Everyone has to be <laughs> vilified in some way or 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 yeah, you that, know, or, or told off or or yeah, labeled that, as as being this or that. That part and, of and, college was never fun. I, I think awkward conversations are, are a wonderful thing, and that it it's it's a it's a safe, non-threatening way to basically learn how full of shit you are. <laughs> and I mean that's and that's I think that's the way people actually gain a 
a broader understanding and learn to, uh, you know, appreciate things that, you know, come from something outside their, you know, depending on how much of a bubble you live in. But when we lose the ability to have those awkward conversations, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's what's really putting up walls of division between different people. How long have we been going for? We have been going for 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we can obviously cut this down quite a bit and try to make it somewhat coherent. So do we have a But do you know what I mean about, you know, having those kind of, like, kind of listening to me talk out of my ass about race a little bit and then correct me and then, okay, I kind of get it. As opposed to, that is, you're oppressing me. <laughs> Imagine if we're having this class in, like, a college classroom. Oh, God, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> I like, don't. I don't. That's and I think there's a lot of, well, a lot of, a lot of white out. people just... They either feel like they need to keep their mouths shut, or, or they, or they just get into this knee-jerk defensive mode, and then they end up thinking that okay, I guess I just have to vote for Trump because they hate me anyway. Uh, is that how it works? <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing. I'm just talking out of my ass. <laughs> you know, I, I have yet to see. I have yet to see a Trump supporter in the wild. We're pretty protected really? here. We need to have some sort of collective acknowledgement as a culture that no one getting into politics is either wholly evil or wholly good. Sometimes it may seem like certain people are, but even if the only good thing about them is the way they make people feel listened to, who have felt not listened to, uh, or even if you feel like the only negative thing about someone is something someone else made up about them, you still have to be able to acknowledge that human beings are human beings. And that means no one is a saint, no one is a god, and no one, no one running for office is Satan. Just the people bankrolling them. Uh, <laughs> it's, that's something that, that I actually really feel like we lost in 2007. That was something that really turned me off politics in, in 2007 and 2008 was the pre-deification of then-Senator Barack Obama. Uh, and it definitely continued through in this election where Trump was deified by his supporters and demonized by his detractors. And the same was true of Hillary. And those of us who were left in a nebulous middle ground uh, were, were left saying, well, I don't like Trump. So the Trump people say, well, then you can't be one of us. Yeah. But if you also, but if you don't love Hillary deep down <laughs> in your bones, then you also can't identify with well, the left. Any vote for anyone other than Hillary is a vote for Trump. And we all right. That, that thing that you always hear. Then the three of us in this room just hold our breath until the last second to hit that. At the last, I mean, in the last two weeks when it, when, when the, after the Comey letter came out, I, I, I had, I felt personally a palpable sense of panic and felt like I had to get behind Hillary in those last two weeks. Um, up until then, I was a supporter of Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson, of course, kind of blew it, you know, with his, by running a terrible campaign, not, you know, just it's. I mean, strategically, let's just, be clear. It his, was a, he. He ran an, a very amateur hour campaign. He did. Let's face it. His campaign manager, <laughs> his campaign manager, who had been his campaign manager four years prior, should never have been near that. But until the Comey letter came out, I really never thought it was like it was possible that Trump could win. And then when that happened, I was like, oh shit, Trump well, could really two, win. Two thoughts for myself. I still voted for Gary Johnson, though I donated 
to Hillary late mm-hmm. in the game, I figured that my vote for Gary oh, Johnson yeah. in Washington State and my uh, was more meaningful to, to Gary oh, and that my donation to Hillary would buy some ad time in Nevada, mm-hmm. which was the state we all cared about, right? But <laughs> until the oh, right I, until I election was, day. I was contemplating like getting on a plane and going to North Carolina and well, knocking on doors. <laughs> but, you know, for all of our... For I was those, like, y'all got to vote for Hillary. <laughs> for those of us who were stuck in the in the media spin circle, mm-hmm. uh, one of the only people who actually did take Trump totally seriously and who actually saw the election coming uh, was Keith Ellison. Mm-hmm. Keith Ellison was one of the few Democrats. This is why the the DNC choice to select Tom Perez over Keith Ellison uh, makes perfect sense. If you consider the Democratic Party to be a fundamentally self-defeating organism. Uh, But from any rational perspective, it makes no sense that they chose somebody who was a senior advisor to the Clinton campaign right up until the end and knew she was going to win (laughs) over someone who said to George Stephanopoulos a year before the election, I think Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. I think we need to take Trump really seriously. Stephanopoulos laughed in his face. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was that in and of itself was a reason for Democrats to want well, to support Keith Ellison. It reminds me of the SNL skit, you know, where they're watching the the where the the black people watching the election. Oh yeah, returns right. with the white friends, and the white people are like, I can't believe it, and the black people are like, Oh yeah, we can believe it. <laughs> it's yeah, like it's, it's it's a perfect you know metaphor. I mean, someone like him, a black guy, a Muslim, he he can kind of see the writing. He he knows what yeah, it was. A black like. Muslim from Minnesota, a state that was way closer than it yes. was supposed to be. Whereas most white liberals, they, they couldn't even wrap their mind around what's really going on. And that's that's the, the problem, I think, that so many li- right, white they liberals can't. have is they can't get their heads around who these people are and what motivates them, what makes them tick. Well, and and as, as in politics, until they can really get, until they can really understand who these people are, and how they think and what motivates them rather than just labeling them some sort of ist, like you say, even if they are, you've got it, you, you still need them. These are people who voted for well, Obama. And part of they're, the. They're not, you know, these aren't like Confederate flag waving like Klansmen here. And here we come back to Russia Gazi Gate. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as the election was over, People within the Clinton campaign started screaming that Russia had <laughs> hacked the election in big fat quotes. And it only takes like a minute of thinking sure. about that to well, what see. What does that even mean? I right. Mean, what were they hacking they the actual throw election a monkey machines? into it. Right. They may well, have. Duh, not there, that. <laughs> there are all sorts of things that Russia may have done to throw more support to Trump. At the end of the day, human beings mm-hmm. got out of their homes and voted. And and the people, like pivotal pockets of people in critical states who had previously voted for Barack Obama, most of them twice, went and voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I feel like the Democratic Party is still just refusing to engage yeah. with. They deflect blame, they deflect, they deflect, they deflect, and no one except, except Ellison and Bernie <laughs> of all people are are willing to engage with that. There's there's an article they, uh, they that was in Reason magazine a couple weeks ago that I thought was really fascinating talking about how 
you know, if you really want to, you know, understand another position, you know, the, and, and this is something they teach, you know, you on like debate teams and whatnot, is if you can basically take the other side's argument and argue it in a, in a convincing way that someone who didn't know better would think you really believed it, <laughs> and that was really your position. If you're a Democrat and you can articulate the conservative position convincingly and convince someone, yeah, I'm, I'm really a conservative, that's, the only, that, that's how you know that that person really understands the other side. I think there's a lot of liberals who, frankly, are less open-minded than, than, than certain Trump supporters, but they can't. To them, that the cognitive would, dissonance would just make their head explode. What do you mean? I'm less open-minded than a Trump voter? And a lot of them, I just want to, some of these people are friends of mine. I want to look at them and say, yes, you're actually less open-minded about politics than a lot of these Trump voters. You know, these are people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. How much more open-minded can you be? <laughs> maybe yeah. they're, may, now maybe they're, you know, maybe they're believing fake news, maybe they're gullible, whatever. But, you know, being open-minded and open to different ideas, that's... These, that's not a terrible thing, and that's something you can take advantage of yeah. if you have a good argument that you can effectively articulate. Yeah, what kind of person votes for a left-wing, <laughs> young, black senator from Chicago in one election, you know, backed by all the unions, and then eight years later votes for a billionaire reality TV star? You know what kind of person? Somebody who's not an ideologue. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, I think somebody who's in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. Someone who feels betrayed on a deep, yeah. deep level. Someone very cynical. Yeah. Uh, right. And that's, or who's been become cynical, dude. Right. Someone who's who, become they, they, very they, cynical. They've been fed so much bullshit from <laughs> from both parties for so long. They've been hearing all these talking points. They're like, well, what has it all gotten me? Yeah. I've gotten promises, empty promises from that side. I've got empty promises from this side. You know, I, tr Trump, he's like, he's not sophisticated enough in a way to just, you know, lie about it in a way. I mean, yes, he, I mean, there's, a, he, it's like Trump, his lies are so transparent that you almost, you can't really take them seriously like you would an ordinary politician. Oh, yeah. Like, they're, like most like... politicians lie to you in such a calculated way, but they actually pretend they're telling the truth. Whereas Trump just wildly exaggerates to the point where it's almost so comical. You're like, well, of course he's exaggerating, but you know what he, but that, but we get what he actually means. Right. And people and prefer sets, that. He's the, also, he's set the bar so low. That speech, 78% of Americans, apparently, according to CNN, approved of Trump's speech, the yeah. joint session of Congress. Well, it was calculated to not be objectionable. It was I mean, except for the part where it was entirely in code. Yeah, well, the whole yeah. speech was in code, and every segment, <laughs> I was just, I was just turning and being like, "That's about block grants." <laughs> like, that's a like. He, it, for Trump, though, it was a good sell job. Yeah, for Trump, it was a good sell job, unless you disagree with the policies. Well, sure. And there is something. The, the fact that he didn't come out and like you know, scream at people and <laughs> that, he, I that think, he did. The fact that he didn't seem angry, that he used his indoor voice, I think people <laughs> were like, oh, he actually seems like he could actually play the president on TV. He doesn't, he didn't seem scary. He didn't, you know, well, he actually, breathe any fire. He did one thing. He did one thing in that speech 
that that was actually more sort of alarming and insidious to me mm-hmm. than almost anything else he's done, which is when he talked about voice, the new task force oh, that will be yeah. they'll be like special Criminal, investigating yeah, yeah. crimes committed that by I, I, illegal I, that immigrants. Was a, that was a bit chilling. Well, yeah. did you notice when he he had those people in the room mm-hmm. who had all lost a loved one? To uh, you know, to a crime committed by an illegal immigrant, mm-hmm. and you know, a handful of them he had stand up for applause. Mm. Did you notice what all those people had in common? They're all white. No, they're all black. Oh, they're all black. They oh, were okay. all. I didn't know. Every every person who yeah. had lost a spouse or a parent or something to a crime committed by an we, illegal immigrant. We were just everybody he highlighted we was just, African American. I was just talking to Chris earlier today about how. You know, I know, like that whole thing about you know going out of his way to mention Black History Month, having all the uh, histor- uh, making the big thing about historically black colleges, and I was and I was saying, I, I, you know, it's interesting. You know, Trump is not going to get anywhere near Obama's level of support, but I there is a lot of room at the margins he wants to get them. black people. You know, bring them into the fold, especially the more traditional, more evangelical. More like law and order, older right. know, type well, ones and, who could say, "Hey, you know this. You know, look at the liberals. All they want to do is give us food stamps and you know treat us like we're we're children that you know need that need them to be mommy and daddy to us." Whereas this guy actually, you know, takes us seriously. He's not talking down to us. So, assuming that the next Democratic ticket is not immediately weighed down by a thousand years worth of scandals. Uh, so basically, if it's anyone please other than Hillary, please don't. Yeah, please, please don't. I mean, you can no, tell no. it's on her mind. Retire, defeat with dignity. Although the latest thing today, everyone's talking about is Oprah. Yeah, an interest whole. We'll save that. That's for a whole the next other topic. Thing. We could. I, um, that's that's a very interesting, you know, so intriguing <laughs> idea. So if you're if you're on the Trump re-election committee, and you're looking at the map, mm-hmm. you know, three years from now, as they as they will be ramping in. Uh, you're looking at what are the areas that need to be held, the places that are most critical that they need to hold. They need to hold the Philadelphia suburbs. Mm-hmm. They need to hold on to the Atlanta you know suburbs. They, there are a lot of states now, from Pennsylvania to Georgia, that are that are going to be the the critical swing well, states sure. where if they can cut into the African-American population. Well, and that's that's the elephant in the room. That's the reason why Trump won, is because of the depressed African-American turnout. Right, but he doesn't want depressed turnout. I think he no. personally actually wants their votes. Yeah. I think that's actually a personal well, thing he wants. Numbers. Oh, yeah. And if he can just... Uh, if he can just improve at the margins, that could be his firewall. If yep. he could get... If he could get his percentage of the black vote up to 10, 15%. And I mean, he's going to hold Pennsylvania. He's going to hold Ohio. (laughs) I mean, he's that, that could be his, that could be his firewall. Michigan, of course, he could keep Michigan. That that's, that's not a bad strategy because nobody is ever going to win again. Just, I mean, they said this after Romney that, well, no one's ever going to win, you know, try to, you know, win using the strategy of just appealing to white (laughs) voters anymore. And I think Trump knows that. Yeah. And I think he sees a lot of opportunities. At least Bannon does. Oh yeah. But it's, 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 it's really interesting in the whole, like, how is this whole, you know, Trump reelection gambit going to, what's, what's the 2020 election going to be about? We're already talking. He's 
That's that's the scary part. It's just he, like settling into that point where he's mm, actually going to make it that far. He had his first re-election campaign event already. He had a rally in Florida that mm-hmm. was clearly a re-election campaign event. Like, it has already begun. Uh, which is so sad. We're just never going to get a vacation. Uh, but I, that's I think, just the way it is. But at the same time, you know, especially in, in Congress, we need to... We need to pick Florida. our battles and and not oppose him on the things that are just silly to oppose. Yeah. You know? Well, there's, well, you know, what are those? If so, if I could give free advice to Democratic congressmen and senators, it would my my advice to them would be: there are things the Democratic Party holds to be sort of you know uh, sacred cows of the Democratic Party that honestly I think they're just going to need to learn to compromise on. And one of the big ones, one of the ones that really jumps to mind for me is school choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Democrats have put so much focus and so much effort on just trying to block charter schools, voucher programs, just trying to block them completely, that they have already lost the fight on oversight. It would be interesting to hear a teacher's perspective on this one. And we know some teachers. Well, and I know some people who are very passionate about school choice. Well, Maybe we should bring Michelle in here. Well, and I'm very passionate. <laughs> about, like, here's my perspective on it, is that I grew up going through public schools in Bellevue, which is supposed to be one of the great school districts in America. But as a student with learning disabilities, that not the best. Uh, and I went from being a student with learning disabilities in public schools to being a religious school administrator, you know, after college. So I've, I've had a sort of a number of different perspectives on it. And my, I've, I've gotten to see it from different angles. And my feeling is school choice could be, could be a tremendous opportunity to innovate in models of education. Mm-hmm. You know, more, more interactive curricula building, you know, things like the Sudbury school model. But not with the current models of oversight. There would need to be more oversight, more transparency. And by by refusing to acknowledge that school choice could be a good thing, the Democrats have already ceded to Republicans on oversight and transparency. And Republican advocates for school choice, some of them are very well-intentioned, some of them are not. <laughs> transparency and oversight... Uh, not not their bag. Uh, you know, one of one of the sort of funny missed stories about what happened recently is in the in the midst of uh, Trump's rescinding of Obama's transgender rights executive order. Uh, the thing that I found most interesting about that was the fact that Betsy DeVos actually wrote down, <laughs> like put words to paper that if they repealed or rescinded that executive order that it would be harmful it would be like yeah. physically harmful to students well she and knows she, she's not stupid she knows well that's knows the thing is the democrats sense. have been calling her stupid mm-hmm. for months they've been saying this woman knows nothing about education yeah. she's completely unqualified because she didn't go to a public school because mm-hmm. she didn't send her kids to a public school because that's the only apparently that's the only uh criterion is have you stepped into a public yeah, school yeah yeah so she has been slammed and slammed and slammed with 
legitimate things and ludicrous things and to have it turn out that in fact she's probably she's probably one of the only advocates for transgender rights within the administration that's a fascinating revelation well, she, and i think something she, people should pay attention to she's putting to. herself in the position she's thinking of it as a as a parent yeah as opposed to as a politician yeah yeah and as <laughs> and as someone who's you know I think she actually does well, care about kids. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, she still needed to keep her job. Right. I mean, that's the thing. At the end of the day, she did choose to stay. She was given the option. As far as we can tell, the option was uh, sign off on the repeal and stay or don't sign it and get out immediately. And she, she chose to stay. And it's impossible to know exactly what's going on in her head. It makes makes me wonder if Trump really meant that, or if he was bluffing. Or I mean, I would have made him look pretty bad if she had resigned over that. Oh yeah. Well, and, and it seems... I wonder if what if she had called his bluff and said, you know, no, Jeff, I'm not gonna, you know. <laughs> right. That's the thing. And, and who was it the big push? Great, but who was it the didn't per- happen. Who was the person who we know was really would she pushing have been for Sally this? I mean. Would she... <laughs> We well, know, it was Sessions, apparently, from what right, I understand. The person who was really pushing to rescind this particular executive order was Sessions. And now that Sessions is in a media, you know, jacuzzi, uh, mm-hmm. what, what is going to happen to things like that, to his, his personal agenda items? Mm-hmm. Will they just continue to slide along, or will some of them, like that one, possibly be reversed? Mm-hmm. You know, because I don't think Trump... <laughs> I don't think Trump gives... <laughs> any shits at all about any part of the LGBT community. I think Trump just doesn't care. He's ambivalent and about it, basically. I don't he's think like, he's ambivalent. I think he's just indifferent. Yeah. Like he, That's what I'm saying. Like thing. he's not a real... They're not the same. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so any unifying thoughts on all this? <laughs> People need to be more open-minded and not shout at each other, says two men <laughs> shouting at each other about open-mindedness. Mm. Well, and just, you know, not enjoy the smell of our own bullshit too much. Okay. <laughs> you know, understand that we're all full of shit to a certain extent. <laughs> well, don't get too, uh, you know, don't fall in love too much with your sacred cows. My, right. <laughs> my takeaway from this is, uh, as we'll be doing this again, I hope whoever is listening to this has enjoyed our... I hope Chris does a really good editing job. Yeah. No, I just, I'm just relying on people to... Um have a really long commute tomorrow. <laughs> I'm, ho- I'm, hoping, uh, I'm hoping whoever is listening to this has enjoyed it and found it at least somewhat insightful. And uh, maybe we should get some feedback before our next episode. Yes, you know what? So. Um, Tara, I'm, enjoy I'm gonna, listening to it. <laughs> I'm going to call it out now. The email address for this podcast is precioussnowflakes at villareality.com. That's precioussnowflakes at V-I-L-L-A-R-E-A-L ity.com how precious how precious so I, we need to hear your <laughs> feedback uh, rant rave whatever and um, and if you <laughs> and if you're really good at it maybe we'll um, and you're in the Seattle area <laughs> we welcome your hate mail yeah we welcome your hate mail go for it <laughs> because we're open minded god damn it yeah alright <laughs> so for um, okay so we should like invest a sign off or something this oh, is Tower. This is Ben. <laughs> this is Lel. <laughs> and this is Chris. Hope you have a lovely week. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, that does it for us. And um, 
Well, let's see you around. Cue the klezmer music. 